0: I want to start this morning with just a a brief overview of where we are before diving into our message specifically this morning. We are starting out this year in this series, walking through what it means to follow Jesus, what he's asked us to do, the models we see in his life, and then how we live those out. So while we started with two weeks on the story of Jesus, the story of Scripture, and learning to read our scriptures, what the story is about. Our main encouragement to you was to be reading scripture on your own and reading scripture together. That's what our small group focus is about at Pennington AG Church. We inductively study scripture together. But if you have not started a Bible reading plan for this year, I strongly encourage you do so. We have resources in the lobby and at penningtonag.church for you to do that and to dive into the story of scripture. This week, we are into our second week on prayer. If you want to look at how to listen or to pause and to yield in your prayer life, you can look back at that from last week on YouTube or on our podcast player, our podcast stream there. Um, But today, I want to talk a little bit about it is Super Bowl Sunday, and I thought about it. If you're preaching in certain regions of the country, it is really easy to just be like, yeah, Seattle with Seahawks, and everybody loves it, or you're like, "It's we live in the South in general, so we are looking at the Atlanta Falcons. But here, it's divided. I want to give my shout out to the Eagles, grew up as a Philadelphia sports fan, but then there's also the Giants, and I feel bad for all of you. And then there's the unique ones here who are Jets fans, and I really feel bad for you. And just know that my heart goes out to you. (coughs) I was not a big football fan, honestly. I'm a tennis guy, which means I can have conversations with like one of you in the room about our passion on that. But when I came back from college, um, we had a men's ministry that met on Monday nights and watched Monday night football. And we had fantasy football leagues. So I was like, well, if I want to connect with the guys of the church, I got to learn football. So I started playing fantasy football. I started reading more about football. And then I found it was kind of dominating my life too much. And so I, I had to parse that back a little bit um, in order to reclaim my roots in, New, in Pennsylvania, well, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania region as an Eagles fan. So 2017 was a big year of being an Eagles fan, and I hosted a Super Bowl party. Yeah, that's us celebrating at the end of it. Um, Went and shouted out my front door. Uh, We took that photo together. I started out the night in prayer, as you are wont to do. And I offered to God a simple prayer where I said, Lord, we are playing against the New England Patriots. You have been so generous to them. And they have had such a great decade of football. We've never won this. And I have no ill will towards the Patriots. But maybe if we could just have this one. And then they can maybe have others down the road. But just, we've never done this. Could you be faithful? The Lord was faithful in that. Uh, and I don't want to trivialize the act of prayer. Although I do think he wants us to bring our passions and our desires to him. Even sometimes when they feel really, really small. Like a football game. But I remember that day, I prayed, Lord, if we could have this game, maybe if there could be some sort of trick play where our backup quarterback goes out as a wide receiver, catches it, and then maybe, Lord, we could call that the Philly special, and we call it a Philly Philly. And um, he just really responded, and he answered those prayers very specifically. Now today, as I think about another chance of winning a Super Bowl as a, a Philadelphia fan, I think about... As I ask God now, I have the context of his faithfulness in a previous prayer. And so as I ask him, I also can trust that he did respond that other time. As silly as it may be, when we talk about our role in prayer, beyond our coming and pausing and yielding, when it comes to asking and rejoicing, our prayer life of what we need is in the context of what God has already done. And so I ask him for the needs of my lives, I bring him the the problems of my life, but I do so in the context of this God who has answered these prayers before, this God who has been faithful to his promises before, and so as I bring my needs before him, I also recognize what he's already done. Last week we said this about prayer, that prayer is the act of pausing from our chaotic world and yielding to God's will. I will add to it this week that prayer is also the act of sharing your needs and responding to God's provision. So we pause and we yield, but we also ask and recognize what God has done and is doing. In order to kind of study this, we're going to look at a text that Jesus most likely knew and had studied himself too, a relatively famous model of prayer in the Psalms, in Psalm chapter 27. The the height of this passage is a passage about David, who wrote this Psalm, asking God, it would be better to spend some time in your home than to be anywhere else. I just want to be in your presence. In looking at this, we're also recognizing the Psalms, if you are unfamiliar with them, it's um, 151 different prayers recorded in Scripture. They run different models and different types of them. The most popular or the most prolific of them being prayers of thanksgiving and prayers of lament. Prayers of saying, God, boy, it's real rough right now. It's looking real bad. I'm just letting you know things aren't going great if you could maybe do something about it. There are many, many psalms of this type. There are other psalms of thanksgiving, God, you've been so good. You've been so faithful. You've given us many. But most often, a psalm is both. It's both of those. It's a lament and it's a rejoice. It's a rejoice and it's a lament. This is very typical of the human experience. And this is the model of prayer most frequent in Scripture. God, I'm recognizing my needs right now. And it may be very severe needs, I'm also recognizing that in previous needs, you've shown up. That in previous moments of problem and struggle, you have answered. Psalm 27 is a model of being thankful for what God has done in the midst of very real and trying immediate problems. This psalm is a psalm of David. Most likely This psalm happens during a time of rebellion later in David's life by his son Absalom. Other scholars say it may be early on when Saul is chasing him, but most likely it's when he's later in life. He's an older king. He's been faithful for a long time. He's made a lot of mistakes. And at this point, one of his worst mistakes is kind of coming back to produce negative fruit in his life. It's coming back to reap what he sowed. His unfaithfulness, his sexual sin is now being seen in the rebellion of his son who is leading a charge against him. This psalm is written most likely during this period, and it's David processing this. Let's look at it together. Psalm 27, we're going to look through verses 1 through 3 and then verses 4 through 6. Psalm 27, 1 through 3 in the New Living Translation reads like this. The Lord is my light and my salvation. So why should I be afraid? The Lord is my fortress, protecting me from danger. So why should I tremble? When evil people come to devour me, when my enemies and foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though a mighty army surrounds me, my heart will not be afraid. Even if I am attacked, I will remain confident." Bold words, big words from David here. He is looking at a very real problem. Perhaps the greatest struggle of his life is this idea his son is leading a rebellion against him. I'll give you a bit of the background. David does many things well. He writes these beautiful psalms. He is vulnerable before God. He trusts in God's provision. He is a great warrior, a good leader. He also really falls to sexual sin, and he's not a particularly good, from the text, father. His children are a mess. Famously, and it's a really controversial part of Scripture when you read it, he has one of his children sexually molests another one of his daughters, his own sister, half-sister, actually. David doesn't do very much about this. And so another son becomes embittered that father didn't protect daughter didn't lead the family. So he begins to see, well, then I'm the protector of this family. If dad's not going to do it, I'm going to do it. This moral failing of my father has invalidated him as king. I'm going to do it. I'm going to lead these people. So as he grows in life, he begins to hang out outside of the kingdom, outside of Jerusalem. And when people go in to worship, he plays this real smart, passive-aggressive game where he's like, oh, you're going to go make your offerings in there before the kingdom, and it is a great kingdom, and my father is a great king. But he doesn't see everything, and he doesn't answer everything. Boy, it would be great if someone could speak up for the little guy. If someone could take care of these problems, he is kind of ignoring. And he builds this momentum. People are like, yeah, you're right. He has forgotten me. You're right. He doesn't think about me. And he says, oh boy, if someone could, maybe someone with beautiful long hair like I have. They begin to center around David's son, Absalom. Eventually he builds enough momentum and he says, passive aggressive game is over. Aggressive game is to come. We're taking the kingdom. So now, His own son has brought his kingdom against him, has smeared his name, and is now bringing back into his face many of his own most vulnerable moral failures. In this moment, David chooses not to fight. Instead, he leaves. He leaves the kingdom, he goes out into the wilderness, and what David often does is in the wilderness, he writes psalms, he writes his prayers down, he writes his songs, he puts his feelings into prayer, he puts those prayerful feelings onto paper, and he expresses them to God. This is a moment, David's life. Verse three is the real problem at hand. There is a very real army actively surrounding David and threatening his life. He has complicated feelings about this, obviously. It's his own son. It's his own sins. And maybe this part of him that's like, well, I did cause this. I did fail in this way. Maybe this is what I deserve. I'm going to put my hands into God's will and see how he treats me. David has immediate, terrible problems. This is what he's praying about. But we see in a pattern of David's prayers that we thankfully have recorded in scripture in the Psalms, about 73 of them are of David. And most of David's Psalms follow this pattern of lament and rejoice, of asking and thanking. This is his pattern. So we see it here. David vulnerably, emotionally, prolifically shares his problems with God. God, I got a lot of problems. Here they are. I'm going to write them out to you and I'm going to put them into beautiful poetic language, and nearly all of his problems are put into the context of rejoicing. Of God, these are my problems, but this is what I've known you've done in the past. This is where I'm struggling right now, but this is who I know you to be. And it asks the question, which I think we ask frequently, particularly for those of us people of faith, do our immediate problems change our long-term perspective of God? How often does the problem I'm living in now affect how I view God has always been? Do my immediate problems change the character of God? Do they? Does it change who He is? Do my immediate problems change what He has already done? How He's responded? Where He's been faithful? Do they change The promises he said he's going to do. Maybe the biggest question. The circumstances I'm in now, does it change that he said he'll be faithful in the future? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe sometimes for us it does. But what David is saying, and I believe the pattern of our prayer life, is that thanksgiving or rejoicing is an act of will. It's not circumstantial. Most of the time, Being thankful is an act of decisive will, saying, my circumstances right now may not look very good. I don't have a lot saved up in my savings. I just lost my job. My hours got cut back. My stocks aren't doing so well. My children are in that teenage age where they don't love me in the way that I want to be loved, and we're trying to work this out. But I want to thank God. And I'm going to thank him even though my immediate circumstances may not be my most thankful expression. I'm going to choose rejoicing. David is sort of shaking his will and waking it up to praise God. Let me praise God. There's almost a willfulness in these first three verses of he's looking at his circumstances, but he's saying, convincing himself, nope, this is not the God I serve. This is not the reality I live in. He's looking around, telling God about his suffering. Then he's shaking his head and saying, but nope, this is not gonna define my relationship with God. And this is the truth about living a life of rejoicing. It is easy to rejoice and be grateful when things are going well. But if we only thank God in times that are well, are we really that grateful? I love my wife. Caitlin is fantastic. She's wonderful, she's creative, she is driven, she is beautiful, and if I only ever told her I love her in the moments where it really emotionally feels like it, is that really love? Or is that emotional infatuation response? Can I tell her I love her in the moments where I'm frustrated? Can I tell her I love her in the moments where it's not going that well in our communication? To be grateful in the moments where the immediate is not demonstrating it, Hebrews chapter 13, verse 15 says it like this, the New Testament. Therefore, let us offer through Jesus a continual sacrifice of praise to God, proclaiming our allegiance to his name. How is praise sacrificial? I'll say this is tough, and it's tough to preach this in our context right now, because I do believe we are living through an era where our lens of life is cynicism. We're living through a lens of cynicism where it's actually viewed as a moral good that we're always angry, that we're frustrated, and we don't tolerate people's bad behavior, and I'm upset about it, and I'm upset about it all the time. That is a moral good now. I'm always angry. I'm always mad. Problem is, I'm also connected to the entire globe of 8 billion people. There's always something for me to be mad about. There's always injustice in the world. I think about the 24-hour news cycle and the outrage it creates in us. It needs to create in us. I don't know how often you follow the news, but last week, it must have been a really down week. Not this past week, because things got nuts with earthquakes and balloons and UFOs that we're now fighting. I don't even know how to touch onto that one. But last week, it was slow, and the news cycle of what to be outraged about was about people not letting people smoke tobacco. And I was like, What? I thought we settled this when I was a kid in the 90s and the truth campaign was out there. We want to be mad about not being able to smoke our cigarettes and really. I thought we were done this 30 years ago. The outrage machine always needs to be mad. I follow on TikTok, there's an account that came up where a guy shames people publicly when they don't put their shopping carts back when they're grocery store, they just leave it out. He has millions of followers where he just goes up with his phone and he shames them for not putting their cart back and he makes these magnets that he sticks to their vehicle. This is something that we want to watch someone just mad about shopping carts. My wife and I watched Wednesday on Netflix. It was pretty good. But in it She is the, her superpower is essentially that she is cynical. Her superpower is that she doesn't like anything or trust anybody, and that's the hero of the story. She's so cool because she hates everything and is always mad, except for the hand that follows her around that she has deep affection for. His name is Thing. There is actual evidence of this shift in our culture. 2016 to 2017, Jimmy Fallon famous from SNL, host of The Tonight Show. He was the number one leading late night talk show host. He had the best ratings by a wide margin. He's super talented, does a lot of fun, goofy stuff, can sing and imitate Willie Nelson, and we like that kind of stuff. Doing all this in 2016. 2017, he slipped to be second to eventually being tied for third. And there's many New York Times articles about this as people were trying to figure out what happened. The main understanding was that the U.S. culture shifted from being able to be silly and lighthearted about life to know we got to be dark and angry and there's a lot of things to be angry about and he's so silly that I don't respect him. He's not mad enough. He's not angry enough. He's not outraged enough. And if he's not upset about the things that I'm upset about, it's not even that I don't care anymore. He's morally wrong. He's wrong not to be as angry as I am. And my anger is saying That I'm right. To many, it was offensive that he wasn't using an entertainment platform to address injustice. And there's complicated feelings around that, and particularly about how we deal with these. But the fact that we're not even allowed to be silly, have to be angry and upset, it is exhausting. Teddy Roosevelt said this about cynicism. A cynical habit of thought and speech, a readiness to criticize work which the critic himself has never tried to perform, an intellectual aloofness which will not accept contact with life's realities. All of these marks are not of superiority, but of weakness. The world is in a tough spot, but I have news for you. The world has always been in a tough spot, the world has always been broken, dark, and sinful. When people say to me, boy, it was great in the 1950s. I say, yeah, when an entire people group was not allowed to vote, that was great. When was the great time? When was it? 1920, 1860, first century AD. When was it when Rome had a bunch of roads? When was the period where human beings weren't bringing pain into the world and there wasn't chaos, there weren't earthquakes, there weren't tsunamis, that these things didn't happen? It has always been this way. But the follower of God is able to hold both at the same time. To be able to say, yeah, the world's broken, but it was created by a very good God who has a plan to bring it all to goodness and restoration. So I can hold this tension of asking God, will you please fix this? Will you please intervene in this? Will you please heal this? While at the same time saying, but I trust that you will in this life or the next, in my lifetime or in the lifetime to follow. Or in the return of Jesus Christ when he promises to rid the world of earthquakes, cancer, and injustice. And I say all this not to trivialize actual suffering. I believe the call of a Christian is to battle with injustice and is to bind our hearts with those who are suffering. Absolutely. This is a key component of the gospel. And it may be, and I want to acknowledge this, when you are suffering and in pain... It may be your sin that's caused it. You're dealing with the consequences of it. That is a tough spot to be in. Maybe the sin of someone else that has caused your suffering. That's maybe even a worse spot to be in. Or it will be just the fallen nature of our world. Tough spot that we are all in. But the good news is that Jesus Christ came to transcend the suffering of the world. That he came to make a way for healing and redemption and hope. He says this to us in John 16, verse 33. I have told you all of this so that you may have peace in me. Here on earth, you will have many trials and sorrows. It's not sugarcoating it. But He says, but take heart because I have overcome the world. This, the biblical model of prayer to acknowledge the suffering of our lives in this world, but to take heart that God has and will overcome this world and this suffering. God wants us to acknowledge our brokenness. That's a big part of prayer, is acknowledging the brokenness of the world. And a third of the Bible is classified as lament, is people trying to understand the suffering of this world. And God wants you to bring that to him. The problem is that many of us have let our lament give context to our rejoicing rather than the other way around my suffering gives context to my praise so i sing praise but also it's not that great right now i read scripture and god's going to promise this but you know it's it doesn't look like that right now that's not my experience right now Versus the scriptural model is, God, there is suffering and there is pain, but I see it in the context of the fact that you are worthy of rejoicing, that you are an overcomer, that you are the one who sets your people free, that you are the healer, that you are the resurrected, that you are the conqueror, that you are the one who brings peace, joy, and love to this world. My lament doesn't give context to my rejoicing. My rejoicing gives context to my lament. Let's look at David continuing this in Psalm 27. Let's see how he contextualizes it. Psalm 27, verses four through six. One thing I ask of the Lord, and the thing I seek most, is to live in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, delighting in the Lord's perfections and meditating in his temple. For he will conceal me when there are troubles to come. He will hide me in his sanctuary. He will place me out of reach on a high rock then I will hold my head high above the enemies who surround me. At his sanctuary, I will offer sacrifices with shouts of joy, singing and praising the Lord with music. David, in his context, his son is taking over the kingdom, wants to kill him. He's saying, I recognize my reality. My immediate moment right now is I need help. But my prayer is, is that I will fully know that I am safe in the presence of the God who has made me and knows me. I will ask for him to intervene because I know that he is the one who intervenes. And I think it's important he doesn't pray that God will take him away from the trouble. He prays that God will be with him in the trouble. He doesn't pray that the trouble will be gone. He prays that he can get through it with God's presence there in the room. Israelite walking through the Red Sea. Maybe he's thinking about this. They went through the sea with God with them. Maybe he's thinking about his younger life and his battle with Goliath. It didn't move Goliath away. He didn't avoid the battle, but God was with him in the battle. And now he's thinking, I have to battle my own son for the control of the kingdom, for my very own life, but God is with me. And I remember he was with me then and he was with me then and he's been with my people here and he's responded here. He will be with me. Rejoicing reminds us who God is and what He has already done when we ask Him to do something new. Before I ask Him to do a whole new thing, before I ask Him to respond to this, I am reminded well, He responded here and He responded there and He answered His promise here and He saved here and He healed here. So when I'm about to ask this, I know I am asking it of a God who answers prayers and who heals wounds and who fulfills His promises. He is praying and worshiping God while still in a battle. His circumstances haven't changed, but the posture of his heart has changed in his prayer. Now, God certainly wants to hear our needs. This is the asking. He wants to hear our needs. That's why he's given us the largest book of the whole Bible is a collection of prayers, vulnerable prayers, needy prayers, asking God to respond and to answer because God absolutely wants to hear the cry of our hearts. The first miracle Jesus did was to not ruin someone's wedding. He intervened. They cried out and he said, okay, I'll respond. God responds to the cry of our hearts and he wants us to bring our needs, our problems to him. In fact, asking God to intervene in our needs and our problems is a refusal to settle on a broken world that we live in. It's, a, it's an act of rebellion. It's an act of rebellion to a sinful world. It's an act of rebellion to my sinful self. It's an act of rebellion to the sin done against me. It's an act of rebellion to the fallen nature of the world we live in. To pray is to rebel. To pray is not to settle. To pray is to hope that the world can and will be better than it is. To pray is to say, I know that an earthquake happened in Turkey and in Syria. And I know that tens of thousands of lives have been lost but I won't settle for the reality that our planet is broken and is going to kill and destroy. Lord, will you intervene and change this and transform this? Will you stop this by intervening and returning by Christ Jesus coming and bringing heaven to earth? When I pray for those family members with cancer, And I ask God to intervene in their body. I am saying, Lord, I know that you made us with a purpose, that you molded us out of the dirt and you breathed the breath of life into us. Jesus, I know you cared and you healed. And so I am not gonna settle for a world where we continually suffer and our bodies decay and die. I will not settle for it. I will believe that you want life for your people. I will not settle when human beings hurt each other. Take advantage of each other, wound each other. I will believe that there is hope and forgiveness and love and healing in it. I won't settle for it. I won't. I won't settle that people are taken advantage of. I won't settle that people are born into lives without food and water. I will not settle for the random chaos of life. And the way that I rebel is in my life of prayer. As I say to God, this is who you said you are, this is what I am seeing. Show me that you are who you said you are. Demonstrate it to me. God says to us Ask me, bring it. Ask me to intervene in the fallen world. Share with me what's on your heart and mind. I want to know and I want to long, I long to redeem and heal this world. I want to give an aside as I'm framing all of this, talking about praise and rejoicing, talking even about pausing and yielding. Sometimes prayer can get really complicated. I don't want to complicate it for you. If you're struggling even just to pray and to pray daily, just take that first step of sharing with God what's on your heart. Start there. Be, be vulnerable and just tell him what you're going through. Share with him what's on your heart. Start there. That's fine. Bring yourself to him. But pray. Start that conversation. If you are not daily sharing your life with God right now, just start there. Having said that, we often bring our desires and our needs to God. And I like to think of it in form of our prayer life as like a ransom letter, like a ransom letter to God. Let's see it. This is kind of what our prayer life looks like. Hey God, if you give me this new job, I will attend church every Sunday for the next six months unless I have a prior obligation, (laughs) or it's really, really cold and icy out, and then I'll maybe watch it online later. Maybe. I don't know. I'll say that I'm going to, and maybe I'll get to it eventually. But it's almost like we're saying to God, hey, if you do this for me, then I'll trust and I'll believe. If you answer my letter, then you got my heart. Praying this way with our asks before our rejoicing, our asking before our thankfulness, is giving God a conditional relationship. If you do this, I will then believe. If you answer, I will then move in. As if he hasn't already answered every doubt, every need, every problem, every weakness by dying for our sins on the cross and conquering death and the resurrection. When we do this, it can become easy to make the mistake. And when we take this posture, and it's important to know, most of our prayer lives, I'm just going to say it, are this. Most of the time, we're listing out things. God, fix this answer this, my neighbor has this, my dog has this, I think about this, I really want this. We list all these things out. And what we're not aware that we're doing in that is we're creating a situation where God is sort of against us. Hey, do this for me or else. Or I'm I'm not actually trusting that you're going to do this. And we create a kind of God versus us situation. Do this or else. Answer this or I won't feel the way I know you want me to feel. We're creating a divide and then we begin to believe God is withholding and not generous. In a sense, we become Mel Gibson in the movie Ransom where we say, give me back my son. Give me back my what you took away. Heal what is broken. God, do this for me. I'm laying it all out for you and do it. Our face gets all shaky like Mel Gibson. But Jesus teaches us to pray in the pattern of Psalm 27. Most famously in Matthew chapter 6. He teaches us to pray like this. Rejoicing, giving context for the ask. And rejoicing and ask being done together. They said, Jesus, how do we pray? Teach us to pray. Jesus says it like this. Pray in this way. Our Father in heaven, may your name be kept holy. He said, start with praise. Recognize the God you're praying to. Start there. Recognize that He is capable and able and has done this before. And when you come to Him, know that you're praying to the Lord of heaven and earth who has created all of this and has all authority. Put that in context of your asks. Then pray, may your kingdom come soon. May your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. May the things I'm asking you for be the things that are of you. May I be seeking your will and way on this world first. May I be wanting people to be more like Jesus. May I want his lordship to be in this earth before I want my own. But then he says, then it is fine. Pray, Lord, give me today the food that I need and forgive me my sins as we have forgiven those who sin against us. Don't let us yield to temptation. But rescue us from the evil one. We ask God for what we need in the context of rejoicing that we have a God who has already provided us with all we could ever need and is a good God who gives good gifts. We live in a time and a culture. Where our brains are already wired towards longing and suffering and cynicism. That's our default. That's the default culture we are inheriting to be cynics. People don't do the things they say they're gonna do, organizations and governments don't care, the world is chaotic. YOLO, I give up. And if we pray this way, which is how we mostly pray, God, things are terrible, things are rough. I'm going to give you a list of all the terrible, rough things going on in my life. Here they are. Here's all of them. Maybe do something. Maybe don't. I don't know. But these are the things that are rough. I'm told I'm supposed to list these to you. So do something with it. When we do that over and over and over again as our exclusive way of communicating with God, yes, He wants our needs and He wants us to share our hearts, but when that's all we do, then our time with God is now wired in the same cynical context that when I'm with God, I'm just talking about the negatives and we begin to associate God with suffering. I've been a part of the prayer chains where I want to stop opening the emails because I know it's just a list of depressing stuff. I have enough depressing stuff in my own life to add everybody else's depressing stuff, to then spend the next half an hour listing depressing stuff to God. And now I think about my time with God as just depressing. It's just sorrowful. Instead of, before I even begin to list that, I list out the good things God has already done and is doing and I know he is capable of. It's rewiring our hearts and rewiring our souls that life is not misery. Life is so very good. God has been so very good to us, so faithful to us. All the things that we love about life and about family and about friends and about the world we live in, He created them on purpose for us to enjoy in His presence. When you go on a hike and you finally get that view and you look out and all you see are mountaintops and horizon, God said, I made that for you to show you that I love beauty and I love to create good things and to experience them with you when you go to a Super Bowl party and your team wins, as I faithfully am trusting my own experience this evening, and you jump up and you're hugging each other and you're celebrating and you just ate like 7,000 calories in a half an hour, and you're just full and you're ready to fall asleep and you're overflowing with that joy. God says, yeah, I made you for this. I made you to want and love this. The community together, the joy of triumph, of the stories of redemption, I made you this way so that when we do come to him with the sins and the brokenness of this world, we are putting it in the context that our God is not a God that creates misery. Our God is a God who creates beauty and good and redemption and love and forgiveness. And we know this because we have the advantage that David didn't in Psalm 27. We have the story of Jesus who came and lived a perfectly loving, gracious, healing, redemptive life who advocated for all of the people taken advantage of an injustice, who healed people around him who were dying of sickness and disease, who intervened in chaotic weather and moments of desert and ocean storms. He showed that he can triumph over them. And then he took the ultimate moment of suffering, the thing we pray against the most, he took death itself and he overcame it. So he said, when you pray, know that you are praying to me and I've already overcome it. I've already triumphed over it. I want you to bring your needs and your problems, but I want you to put them in the context that I am a God who solves and heals and redeems and forgives. On your way out, you can grab this morning a copy of a prayer sheet. You can also find it online. Online that's guiding you through these prayer exercises, moments of sitting in silence and hearing God's voice, but also showing us that we have a role to play in our speaking to God, engaging with God, praising and rejoicing with Him. I'll give you a few practicals as we kind of close in on this time of prayer. If you've never practiced a gratitude list, it's one of the most transformative spiritual experiences you can do. Of daily listing out the good things God has done in your life. Daily listing out the things He's done that give you joy. It doesn't just have to be the churchy stuff. It could be that beautiful dinner meal with your friends where you ate too much and you laughed till you cried with each other late into the evening. God made us for that. He did that in the Gospels. Ate and laughed and cried. Share those moments of why you are grateful to be alive and grateful to love and be loved and forgive and share those with Jesus and he will come along and say, I know. I know how good that is. So that Practice journaling. Write down your prayers. You will find, more often than not, God answered your prayer in a way that was better than how you even asked Him to. We practiced this in our small group for years. And we can see people asking to have children and then now I'm looking at their children. People praying over their marriages and now seeing the joy in them. People praying over a work situation and now at peace in their career to see God respond to it. We often forget that he answered it and he was faithful in it and he fulfilled his promise. Sing a song of praise when you are alone. The benefit of this is no one has to hear you. I take a lot of joy in that. But sing it out. This is the pattern. These psalms were written not just to be read on the page. They were written to be sung because something about singing connects into our internal emotions. And sometimes when I am frustrated or angry or sad and I begin to sing the promises of God, it does a work of transforming my heart and my soul. If you don't know where to start at all, pray through a psalm And use it as your words. God, I don't have the words for it. David had the words for it. Let David's words be my words. And I'll pray through each verse and I'll say, God, yes and amen. I'm joining in with this. And you will learn the pattern of rejoicing and asking. Rejoice, lament, ask. As we close, I want to give us an opportunity to just sort of practice and galvanize a life of prayer. This is not something where I'm going to preach you two weeks of it and you're going to be like, got it. You're going to have to practice this day in and day out. Make this space for God. Share what's on your heart. Remind yourself of what He's done. But we do have an important reminder and tool when we gather as a church. We do have this altar space. And this altar space is designed and First modeled in Acts chapter 2 as a place to rejoice and to ask. We come around this space, the worship team plays a song, rejoicing and reminding me of God's faithfulness. At the same time, in this posture, I'm invited to ask God to respond to my needs. I'm invited to ask another church member, an elder, a pastor to respond with me to my needs. It is an active place. Every Sunday we are given the opportunity to rejoice and ask together, to practice this so that I know what it's like, that I hear it when I'm home, alone, and separated from the community that Christ has given to me. And I want to give you a chance today before we leave, before we get ready, the Super Bowl's six and a half hours away, before we move into any of that, to take a moment and as a church community, demonstrate to God we're gonna practice rejoicing and asking in your presence, communally and as a family. If you could stand with me all over the room, if you can. Before we move into this communal time of prayer, I want to just give an opportunity. If you're in the room today and you can't confidently say you have a relationship with Jesus, you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he has forgiven you, that you have eternal life promised to you, I want to give you a chance of taking that first step of praying a prayer, of moving into that relationship. For those of us in the church, you can just pray this along as a commitment, as a reminder. If you bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Jesus, in this moment, I want to know you as Lord, Savior, and friend. Jesus, I believe that you came to this earth, you put on flesh and you lived as God and as man, that you lived a beautiful, sinless, loving, and gracious life. And that At the end of your life, you took on the suffering and brokenness of this entire world, not for anything you had done, but for what we have collectively done in our sin and pride and hatred. You took that onto your shoulders. You died in our place. You were buried in the ground. And on the third day, I believe that you rose from the grave miraculously, triumphantly, and you left death in the grave and that you now live forever resurrected in glory so that I may one day live resurrected in glory eternally alongside of you. Jesus, you gave your life for me. Today, I commit my life to follow you and know you as Savior, Lord, and friend. Amen. As the worship team leads, I'm gonna give you space around this altar. Our elders will be up here on my left and on my right. We will be glad to pray with you. And I'll give you just a little bit of of direction here. Um, if you want someone to pray over you, or just even just respond with a touch, I'll be up here as well. I'll ask you to kind of come to the middle part of this altar space. If you want to come up and you want to pray, and you're like, I don't, I want to come up and respond. I don't necessarily want you to be touching me. Um, I get that. You can go to the left and the right over there. And then I'll pray that at some point the Holy Spirit will make you like start shifting into the middle. Um, But that is okay. We'll open this space up here and we'll invite the Holy Spirit before we leave, before we dismiss and go about what we have for the day to make the space in here to rejoice and bring your needs to Christ in this moment. Bring them into his presence and let us remind each other how very good our Lord and Savior Christ Jesus is. Let me pray and then we'll open this up. Lord, we give the space to you. We invite your Holy Spirit to speak to us. May we speak back to you who we are, our needs, our struggles, and may we recognize your good, capable, and loving presence in your name.